From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. While it's scary to find out your child or even unborn baby has a heart problem, you are not alone. Congenital heart defects are the most common type of birth defect. The good news is, as medical care and treatment options have improved, babies born with heart defects are now living longer and healthier lives. On today's program, we'll discuss congenital heart defects and heart surgery with a Mayo Clinic expert. Also on the program, we'll discuss the painful condition known as endometriosis, including what it means for women when it comes to having children. Plus, treatment for jaw pain and TMJ disorders. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. If your child has a congenital heart defect, it means that they were born with a structural problem of the heart, a problem that changes the normal flow of blood through the heart. Now, there are many types of congenital heart defects, and they range from simple defects with no symptoms to complex defects with life-threatening symptoms. Congenital heart defects are the most common type of birth defect, and I didn't realize that. They affect eight out of every 1,000 newborns, and each year in the United States, more than 35,000 babies are born with a heart abnormality. 35,000. In some cases, doctors can find these problems during pregnancy, but in other cases, symptoms may not even occur until adulthood. Congenital heart defects can be simple and don't require any treatment or are easily fixed, but others that are more complex may require multiple surgeries performed over a period of several years. Here to discuss congenital heart defects is the Chair of Cardiovascular Surgery at Mayo Clinic, Dr. Joseph Duraney. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Duraney. It's great to see you. It's great to be back, and thank you for the invitation. Dr. Duraney, always great to see you. Great to have you on the program. This sort of sounds like, from a surgical standpoint, not something that a rookie can do. Tell our audience how long it took you to learn how to do what you do. So we're talking about seven, eight, nine years after medical school to dive into this specialty. Uh, but you like what you do? I love what I do. And you do it every day and, and keep and, coming back to work. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so this is heart defects are the most common of all birth defects. Didn't realize that. So uh, although they're uncommon overall, you must see a lot. We see a lot. Of course, they get clustered at various centers that are providing treatment options for these children. Uh, but yeah, it is, it is common. But I think the most important thing when people think of congenital defects that children are born with, oftentimes that there's an associated thought that the outlook is not very promising. When in fact, with, with congenital heart disease, the outlook and the promise for a, a really wonderful future is generally the rule for most of these children. So, um, it can be stressful in the beginning, and sometimes more than one operation or more one more than one intervention may be necessary. But you know, at the end of the road, I mean, the quality of life for the vast majority of these children is is generally very very good. They can go to school, they can get jobs, they can be functional members of society in a very meaningful way. So, but this wasn't always true, right? No, 
No, it wasn't always true. I mean, once the once the advances in cardiac surgery, you know, came to fruition, I mean, now we can provide, you know, treatment for even the most complicated congenital heart defects, even in the newborn period, that is within the first month of life, and get them back on track. What you, causes these congenital heart defects? Well, actually, that's a, that's a great question, and it's probably one of the most common questions I get from a parent because oftentimes there's concern sure. that they did something wrong. And the fact of the matter is is that most of these defects, there is no known cause, probably 80 to 90% of them. For those where there is a cause, it could be related to alcohol or drug abuse during the course of pregnancy, which fortunately is very, very rare. And I would remind people that not just a random glass of wine probably did not contribute to it. Um, there can be um, some odd viruses like rubella can, you know, can be associated with um, with the development of congenital heart defects. There are some medicines uh, that can also contribute to it. And if you're getting the appropriate prenatal care, um, there, you know, there should be you should fall in the category of the unknown as opposed to an an absolute cause that could have been avoided had one known. Is there a most typical or most often diagnosed defect? The most common ones are holes in the heart, um, for sure. And, and valves are probably second on the list. But there is often a combination of holes and valves that are abnormal as part of one one defect. Mm. But holes by themselves would be the most common, you know, would be the most common um abnormality. So there are four chambers in the heart, and when you talk about a hole uh, in the heart, you're talking about a hole between... Either the the receiving chambers or the pumping chambers, yes. How often are these genetic? Yeah, genetic would be the other other, um, category of explanation for it, and uh, and that still ends up being relatively uncommon. I think the common question Mm -hmm. that parents will ask is if they have a child with a congenital heart defect, what are the chances that they're going to have yet another child with it? And while the odds go up slightly, they don't go up dramatically. There are certain defects that have a known genetic linkage, but that is a very, very small fraction when you look at the whole array of congenital heart defects. So how are most of these picked up? When are they discovered? Well, many of them are discovered prenatally with routine ultrasonography that is done on mom prior to you know delivery, which is usually at the 18-week 18 to 20 weeks, many, most of the anomalies, at least the important, the serious ones that may require intervention are picked up then. So the ultrasound is that good that it can actually not just see a little something that looks like the heart. It can tell you that there's something wrong with the heart. It can. Amazing. Which explains why before we had the ultrasound developed to the level that it is now, so much of this went undiagnosed until after the child was born. That's right. And in some situations when it's a very concerning defect, arrangements could be made for the delivery in a very controlled manner in a center that can deal with it right after birth because some of these defects require attention right after delivery. You sometimes do that? I mean, take a baby straight to the OR after they're born? It's it's the exception rather than the rule, but there are some situations where something, not necessarily OR, but it may be an intervention, um, you know, a, a catheter-related um, intervention that is done within the first 24 hours of life. So what's it like operating on a one-month-old child? But do you have magnifying glasses, or uh, it's pretty it's it's pretty customary for for surgeons to wear loops, magnifying glasses when they're operating, and and uh, yes. How yeah. big is the heart in a in a 
child that age, well, months I think old? A, a golf ball size, give or take. It depends on the anomaly. Some of the anomalies will result in a heart that's slightly enlarged and some maybe slightly smaller, but that would be kind of a rough, you know, the old, the old, you know, saying it's about the size of, you know, your fist um, is, is probably not far off. I mean, for a baby, maybe it would be mm-hmm. slightly bigger, but it gives you kind of just a general reference point. You referenced the ones that, or you mentioned the ones that you find with uh, uh, ultrasound. What about after the child has been born? What are the symptoms that you might discover then? Well, the most common symptoms right when they're first born, the first would be blueness. I mean, if they were blue when they were born, uh, that will really prompt an investigation to exclude congenital heart disease because most most often the explanation is going to be a structural defect with the heart as opposed to a lung problem. You know, beyond that, it would be a murmur. Um, most most structural defects in children result in some aspect of heart failure, which in a child is manifested as breathing very rapidly. Um, and then it, this wouldn't be appreciated right after birth, but the inability to gain weight properly is also can be a reflection of congenital heart disease where you know, all the blood flow is being redirected toward the lungs and they just don't gain weight. We call that failure to thrive. And how do you figure out exactly what is wrong? Well, an echocardiogram will, uh, you know, answer the question 99 plus percent of the time. So ultrasound of the heart um, by a by a talented group of pediatric cardiologists that do this all the time can get exquisite detail about the defects. And then in selected circumstances, would you complement an echo with either a cardiac catheterization or a CT scan something like that to confirm or to clarify something that may be a little confusing on the echo. And when do you uh, make the decision that they need surgery? I assume that there are some of these defects that don't need surgery or can be treated with something other than an operation. Mm -hmm. So some defects can be treated uh, percutaneously with a catheter, usually when they get bigger. Um, and then it, it's pretty clear, you know, in the textbooks, you know, the timeline for intervention with, with the majority of these defects. Some defects, it's, it's essential that you do surgery in the first week of life. Other defects, it's important that you do it in the first six to nine months of life. Other defects, you may intentionally wait until they get a little bit bigger. And all of this has to do with risk related to surgery. Sometimes defects, um, the risk becomes lower when they get bigger and older. Uh, and then some, you know, untoward consequences like, you know, improper brain development because of extreme blueness, you might be intervening much earlier to correct that problem. Is that why it, some heart um, defects can take multiple surgeries? Yeah. Some, some, some defects require a, a staged approach to operations. Some things you can do in the newborn period and some things you can't do until they get older. So there are temporizing procedures that you do to get them to the next stage, so to speak. Um, and, of course, the ideal lesion is one where you fix it once and they're done and, and it would be unlikely that they're going to need um, an intervention. But, importantly, they still will probably need oversight and surveillance. All right, we're talking about congenital heart defects with the chair of the Department of Cardiovascular Surgery at Mayo, Dr. Joe Durrani. Time for a short break. When we come back... We're going to talk about robot-assisted heart surgery, oh making goodness. some surgeries less invasive. Amazing what you do, Dr. Durrani. Can't wait to hear more. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We are with the chair of the Division of Cardiovascular Surgery at the Mayo Clinic, Dr. Joe Duraney, and we've been talking about congenital heart defects, but... Now a new topic. Yeah, robots. How about that? Robots in the operating room. It's no longer science fiction. It is here to stay. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, we've talked about babies. Now we're talking about robots that uh, have the ability to do amazing things from a cardiac surgery standpoint. Well, I can imagine, to link the two together, Dr. Shives was pointing out, an infant's heart is the size of their little fists. It's so tiny. A robotic-assisted surgery, I would think, would be really beneficial in that case. Well, unfortunately, there does need to be a certain size of the patient for the robot to fix because the arms of the robot need to fit in the chest cavity to Mm -hmm. actually be able to do it. So it's not ready for infants and very small children. But when you get into the teenage years, there is a role for it for selected lesions. And I think this is the message for the listener is that while the, the public is interested in all their operations, regardless of what type it is to be done through the smallest possible incision, we do have the capability to do that in cardiac surgery, but it is for a relatively short list of procedures. Mm-hmm. It's not for every procedure. And and sometimes you know, patients get disappointed when they find out that they need heart surgery and then the robot's not applicable. But for the lesions that it is, it is a wonderful way to approach it. Well, give us an example when you could use the robot. The most common indication would be mitral valve disease, which is one of the valves inside the heart on the left side becomes leaky and it needs to be repaired. And uh, the robotic approach is, is really beautiful for this because it can be done with a very small, a three-centimeter incision. And um, we, we duplicate the identical operation that we would be doing open. So we've not compromised, we've not cut any corners in terms of the operation that is being offered. We do the same operation, but we're able to do it through a very small incision. So what, what does that mean? You are at a console, and then there are little hands over there, or yeah. robotic hands that you control? So it requires, actually, a very cohesive team. Um, there is a console that sits in the corner of the operating room where, the, where one surgeon will drive the, the, the arms of the robot, and you use both hands and both feet when you're doing this. Well, it's like flying an airplane. It is. It's, yeah. like, it's like being in a cockpit. And then at the bedside, there is a, a number of people around the patient at the bedside, and everybody has a very defined role. And there are two people that are right around the arms of the robot. So through the small incision, one of those surgical assistants, another surgeon, is passing the needles and the sutures and the rings or whatever it is that we're using through this keyhole that then the arms of the robot are then doing the surgery. And so it does require an orchestrated sort of perfectly choreographed, you know, um, um, group of people that are used to working together. The main reason to do this is so the smaller incision for the heart, is that the only reason or the main reason? So the first is cosmetic. Of course, the incision is a small incision, and it's on the side, so there's nothing visible in front. There are other very small incisions, kind of like the size of a pen, where the arms of the robot go in. So the first would be cosmetic. The second would be it's, it's less invasive, so the risk of infection is lower. The chances of needing a blood transfusion are lower. And importantly, the recovery from surgery is quicker. So not only is their length of stay in the hospital shorter, usually three to four days instead of five to seven days, the total recovery is two to four weeks where they can be back to work as opposed to six to eight weeks. And so their time away from work and their participation back into society 
is all accelerated. So there are many advantages with uh, the robotic approach. Structurally getting at the heart. I mean, it just has to be a ton easier to do all those little bitty incisions. Well, it is for certain problems. Like, for example, it's difficult to do, you know, the common operation of coronary bypass grafting. That would be difficult to do with the robot. Now, if you only have one bypass graft that you need to do, there is a way to do it. But if you're doing multiple grafts, mm-hmm. you can't get to the left side and the front and the right side all through one little incision on the side of the chest. So this is where there's some confusion. It's it's very, very good for certain things, but it's 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 just not possible for other things. Maybe someday. Maybe someday. Um, so the uh, recovery is significantly quicker. The, the cosmetically, you've got a small incision instead of having your chest cracked, right? right. Um, but what about the results and the time it takes to do the operation? Yeah, that's a very good point. So it actually does take a little bit longer to do the operation. Now, when I say longer, I should say that the total time in the operating room, the actual surgical time, and in cardiac surgery, the important time um, the important times that are monitored are how long you're on the heart-lung machine and how long the heart is stopped. And once you get through the learning curve, at least in our experience, those times are not that different than when you do it open. But there's a lot of stuff that goes on before that and after that. For example, the anesthesia preparation and, and the different blocks that they do for pain control. And then after you're done, they wake the patient up, try to get the breathing tube out. There's a lot of non-surgical things that go on in the operating room that keep the patient away from their family for a longer duration of time. But the actual operating time is is initially longer, but once you have a seasoned team, the times can be very similar to what they are for open surgery. What else is new in heart research? I think, you know... Um, a couple of things come up. Stem cell therapy mm-hmm. uh, and stem cell therapy um, um, just in general is the ability to take a patient's own cells, usually retrieved from the bone marrow, separate them out to the very, very early precursor cells that have the ability to develop into whatever cells you want, re-injecting them into the heart at the time of a heart operation to improve the function of the heart. This gets at the big family of heart failure which, of course, is rampant in the United States, people dying from heart failure. So whether it's a congenital defect like we talked about or an acquired defect, coronary artery disease, any situation where the function of the heart is going below normal, there is a lot of enthusiasm and hope that stem cells will actually have the ability to improve the function of the heart. So that would be one thing. And then catheter-based procedures. I mean, we're talking about robotic and minimally invasive surgery, but there is a lot of movement going toward even beyond robots and small incisions to total catheter-based therapy, which cardiologists and surgeons are working on together. And we have a lot of that going on at the Mayo Clinic. It's all intriguing. We've been talking about congenital heart defects and robotic-assisted surgery with the chair of the Division of Cardiovascular Surgery at Mayo Clinic, Dr. Joe Duraney. Dr. Duraney, so great to have you on the program. Thank, Thank you. you so much for having me. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll learn more about the painful condition, endometriosis. And treatment for TMJ. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams from the Mayo Clinic News Network. If you want to lose pounds and flatten your belly, breakfast may be your best friend. Mayo Clinic cardiologist Dr. Varen Summer says that for reasons we don't quite understand yet, eating breakfast seems to be a marker of two things. 
One, the less likelihood of having gained weight recently, and two, a smaller belly circumference and less of what's called visceral fat. Dr. Summers helped oversee a study that showed people who ate breakfast daily gained less weight than those who didn't eat breakfast. He says those who ate breakfast very frequently put on less than three pounds in the past year, and those who ate breakfast maybe one to four times a week put on about five pounds. The ones who didn't eat breakfast at all put on about eight pounds. And the correlation between breakfast and less belly fat is even more important for your health. Belly fat is associated with high blood pressure, diabetes, and heart disease. Doctors in the study warned this isn't necessarily about eating more or fewer calories. It's more likely about eating the same number of calories, but earlier in the day. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Jives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Endometriosis is a disorder in which tissue that normally lines the inside of the uterus, the endometrium, grows outside the uterus. Endometriosis most commonly affects the ovaries, fallopian tubes, and the tissue lining the pelvis. Endometriosis. Something you've heard of? Of course, yeah. It can cause pain and sometimes severe and especially especially during menstruation, really severe pain. Fertility problems can also develop. Fortunately, there are treatment options that are available. And here to discuss is Mayo Clinic gynecologist, Dr. Tatney Burnett. Welcome to the program, Dr. Burnett. It's nice to meet you. Pleasure to meet all of you. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Dr. Burnett, thank you for coming. Um, This disease is a little bit difficult to understand, I think, for anyone. So if you have a patient, a new patient, how do you explain to them what's wrong with them? Well, I think the way you described it initially is is essentially the approach that I take. You know, it's tissue from inside the uterus that's outside of the uterus, functioning in a way that it's not supposed to function. Um, you know, it's a strange disease because, as you said, it has different manifestations of symptoms. Um, and unfortunately, there are many patients who also don't have symptoms. We diagnose it very late, so often women go through long periods of time where they don't know that they have a problem that can be treated, um, and often are just uh, their symptoms are normalized and they're told, "Well, periods are just painful, you know, suck it up, deal with it." Yep. Why does it happen? That's a great question. There are probably six, seven theories um, that we rely on to help explain, uh, but ultimately we do not know which theory is correct. We do not know if maybe multiple theories are correct and there are different etiologies in different patients. Probably the most commonly held theory is uh, one known as Samson's theory. Uh, we know that 80-90% of women actually menstruate backwards through the fallopian tube. So while they bleed forwards through the vagina, they also menstruate backwards through the fallopian tubes. That probably mm. deposits some endometrial cells in the pelvis. Wow. Well, no, I never knew that. Yep. Retrograde menstruation. Retrograde menstruation, that's right. And it's postulated that that might be one of the ways that cells from the inside of the uterus implant themselves in the pelvis. Um, That being said, we have plenty of uh, patients who have disease in locations that aren't explained by that one theory. So we use other theories to explain why they might have disease, for instance, on the diaphragm or in the liver or, you know, other places. Is it... I would imagine that there's people trying to figure out the reason why. That's what some of the research is. Correct. The problem we have in endometriosis is that, unfortunately, it's not a sexy disease. It doesn't have a lot of research um, going on compared to things like cancers or other more what are considered more high-impact diseases. Also, it has to do with women. It affects women instead of men. Correct. Oh, no, Tracy. 
Tom, uh, yeah, oh, come on. I think women get a lot of attention from the health community <laughs> and, and medical care. It's, uh, he agreed granted. with me. Well, okay. <laughs> I may right. take I'm a outgoing. little more attention yeah. yet to even the score. But. <laughs> All right, continue. The other theories that are commonly uh, discussed are, you know, we know cells in the body can change their cell type. We call that metaplasia. Um, and is it possible that cells where they are might be changing to endometriosis instead of endometriosis being transported into a different location? Um, that might explain uh, why some of the cells lining the pleural cavity, for instance, might um, change into endometriosis. The pleural cavity, you mean in the, the lung, lung? Correct. Okay. That's right. We have seen endometriosis in pretty much every tissue in the body. So there's been endometriosis diagnosed in the brain and uh, other locations. And uh, one other theory is that maybe it spreads like a cancer. Maybe it goes through veins or lymphatic channels um, and is transported throughout the body. So, you know, those are probably three of the most commonly discussed theories. There are more, such as that it's congenital. Maybe you're born with the endometriosis that you have um, and other more minor theories as well. Let's talk about the, the symptoms. Obviously pain. What else? And, and where is do they usually have pain? So pain most commonly is pain associated with menses. It's fairly common as well that that pain may precede menses by a day or two or longer. It's because these cells that have, uh, the endometrial cells that have gone elsewhere also menstruate? Correct. So they respond to hormones typically like the cells inside of the uterus still respond to hormones. Um, in the second half of the cycle before a woman menstruates, those cells are responding to progesterone. Progesterone causes uh the cells to kind of stabilize and get ready to be shed, and that stabilization can cause a little bit of pain as well. Do most women with endometriosis not have pain between menses? You know, we differentiate that as dysmenorrhea, or pain with menses, and chronic pelvic pain, pain that's outside of the cyclic menses. And the I would say there, it's definitely more common to have dysmenorrhea, but it's not uncommon for women to transition from just dysmenorrhea or pain with menses into pain that's all the time. So uh, I think the longer women have endometriosis, the more likely they are to convert over into chronic pelvic pain as opposed to just pain with periods. What it means to me is that you can't have children. Is that what endometriosis ultimately means? Not necessarily. So endometriosis is associated with infertility. Uh, however, not all women with endometriosis have infertility. Wow. Yeah. And again, the relationship isn't that clear. There, our most common way to describe endometriosis and its location is the ASRM revised staging criteria um, that uh, gives points for different locations of endometriosis. And it actually doesn't really describe fertility, um, fertility's relationship to endometriosis that well. Um, but what we do know is that women with stage three or four have a higher likelihood of infertility than women with stage one or two. All right, treatment. What have we got? Essentially, you have two arms, manage with medications or treat with surgery. And most experts recommend after treating with surgery to continue medical management. First thing to understand is that really uh, medications don't uh, change the disease in a fundamental way. So if you have things stuck together in the pelvis, if you have endometriosis nodule, the medication will treat the symptom, but it typically doesn't make the nodule or the endometriosis go away. And medication, what kind of medication? Is it hormonal treatment? We typically rely heavily on progesterones um, or medications that have progesterones and other things such as birth control pills. Um, we can get more aggressive with medications that block hormones in one way or another as well. So you, you can't stop endometriosis then? If Is that what the medication does? So it's really not clear if our 
first steps of medical management, the progesterones change the disease course, huh. actually change what will happen to you after being five years on medication versus not using the medication. So we don't know that it fundamentally changes what uh, the outcome of the disease is going to be in any individual. All right, surgical options. So most experts now are recommending that we excise endometriosis. That means cut it out where we find it. Um, commonly in the past, we used to burn it or fulgurate it. Um, the problem is, you know, there are different forms of endometriosis, superficial st uh, endometriosis that coats things, deep endometriosis that uh, uh, burrows into tissue or takes up space. Mm. And if you just burn on the top of some of the deeper disease, you're really not treating it. Uh, and we often see women here who present with that. They've had prior surgery, they still have pain, and we go in and we find deeper disease that was just burned on the surface. So when you excise disease, you are able to identify if you're cutting through a deeper lesion or not and adjust your technique and take out the whole lesion. When you burn it, it's harder to identify if the lesion's a deep lesion or superficial. So we recommend excising. Now, does this mean hysterectomy in most instances? Not Removal necessarily. Of the uterus? So there's a fine line understanding how hysterectomy is related to endometriosis. While we do think that some of the endometrial tissue may come from the uterus in some woman, removing the uterus alone doesn't treat the endometriosis where it is. So you can take out the uterus and still have endometriosis in the ovary or on the pelvic sidewall and just in the tissues around the uterus. So really you do have to excise the endometriosis where it is. Some evidence uh, recently that women who are less than age uh, 35 who have a hysterectomy for endometriosis in particular have an increased risk of heart disease later on. That's correct. So anything that we do that affects a woman's long-term exposure to her natural hormones will affect risks for those postmenopausal type diseases. When we do a hysterectomy, the uterus does share some blood supply with the ovaries, even though the ovaries have their own blood supply. And uh, so we know that women typically go through menopause one to two years on average earlier when they have a hysterectomy despite keeping their ovaries. All right, unusual strange disease, but it's good to know that there are treatment available, both medical and surgical. Dr. Tatney Burnett from the Department of Gynecology, Mayo Clinic, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn more about treatment for jaw pain. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. The temporomandibular joint. Good. You did that good. That's fine, but I'm <laughs> going to call it TMJ from now on. They act like a sliding hinge connecting your jawbone to your skull, and it lets you move your jaw up and down, side to side, so that you can talk, thank goodness, <laughs> chew, and yawn. TMJ disorders can cause pain in your jaw joint and in the muscles that control jaw movement. In most cases, the pain and discomfort associated with TMJ disorders is temporary, and it could be relieved with self-managed care or non-surgical treatments. But if conservative measures don't work, some people with TMJ disorders may benefit from surgery. Here to discuss is oral maxillofacial surgeon Dr. Jonathan Fillmore, DMD, MD. <laughs> and I saw that on your name tag and I said, I've never seen that before. DMD, MD. What does it mean? Uh, DMD is just a dental degree equivalent to DDS. <laughs> Some say doctor of mall dentistry or mass destruction, but it's just a dental degree that's awarded by some dental schools. A Welcome to the dentist. program. Yeah, mall dentist. Welcome to the program, Dr. Fillmore. Thank Great to much. have you. How common are TMJ disorders? 
The estimated incidence in uh, adults in the United States is about 5%. So the best information we have right now is about 6% uh, for women and about 3% for men. But there's some ongoing studies that are shedding new light on that right now. So we can get our audience oriented. You can actually feel your TMJ joint, can't you? Yeah, if you press just right in front of your ear and you open and close, you can feel a little bulge, and that's common. It feels like it's right under the skin, but actually it's about an inch to an inch and a half deep. It's just that uh, the joint is very well transmitted through the skin there. Here's where you're going to want to watch this on YouTube, because both of us went, ah. There it is. Yep. <laughs> got it. Okay. How do you know, though, that you've got trouble with your TMJ, with that area? So the main problems are with uh, dysfunction that involve opening and closing or chewing, and most of it has to do with either pain or if you have a problem with the actual motion where you might have some locking or things like that. And I would hasten to say that a lot of times people will say, well, I have TMJ, which is a, a place, and a TMD being a temporomandibular disorder is a little bit more specific, but it can involve problems with the bone and the joint, but it can also involve problems with the surrounding musculature. And so sometimes those are easily confused, and sometimes even for a doctor, uh, difficult to distinguish. When you have tension in your jaw, is that part that leads to a problem with your TMJ? Yeah, so you can have problems with jaw posturing or with uh, grinding and clenching. Those commonly will cause problems associated with the, the powerful muscles that close your jaw, um, the masseter muscles, the one that you can feel when your jaw bulges out on the side when you clench down, or your temporalis muscle up here on your, uh, by the temples you can feel. And so those often will become sore when people have those clenching or grinding or jaw posturing habits when they carry a lot of tension in their jaw. In some cases, uh, those can contribute toward having problems with the joint itself because it increases the load that you're putting on the joint. But in many cases, it's mostly a muscular problem. Now, tell us about the joint itself. I mean, there are these two bones that are connected, and isn't there a little disc or, uh, in between the, the two bones to help cushion the motion? That's right. So the uh, base of your skull, uh, I guess you could say it's the socket portion, and the ball portion is part of your lower jaw or your mandible, and they slide, and like you said in the beginning, it's a sliding hinge. And the disc is a pad that helps kind of negotiate that movement as it moves back and forth. And that can wear out? It certainly can. You can have tears in it. It can uh, have a hole in it. It can become uh, displaced um, anteriorly, so it forward where people will get kind of stuck on it and have a hard time opening, things like that. Yeah, that's got to be terribly painful, or is it just bothersome? That's a, another great question. So in many individuals, the disc does get out of place, and they'll have a click. The, the click is usually painless, and that's okay. If you have normal range of motion and you have a click in your jaw, it's extremely common. i got a brother-in-law who's always begging me to fix the click in his jaw, and I just mm -hmm. say, I'm not touching you. You're going to be okay. <laughs> but uh, if it becomes a painful click or if you have a problem where uh, you had some clicking and then it's gone and you can't open anymore, you're probably stuck behind that disc. Um, you could go on to adapt or you may be a candidate who needs surgery. May I demonstrate? Ah! Oh, my gosh! <laughs> you're going to make I wish, it. I got it bilateral. I wish you would have told me you were going to do that. Yikes! Yeah, so you probably <laughs> well, have I need some, surgery, doctor. You don't need surgery. 
<laughs> you probably just have some arthritis in both of those joints where the disc is perforated, and I've got a perforation in one of mine, too, and yeah. we're both going to make it. At this young age, I've got arthritis in that joint. So, I'm going to need surgery. My spine just <laughs> shot out the top of my head. Are you kidding me? Okay, so... How do you fix TMD problems in the TMJ? Good question. So <laughs> there are, as you mentioned before, there are lots of um, temporomandibular disorders or TMDs that are self-limited, meaning they'll go away with time, up to about half or sometimes even more depending on the study. So a lot of the muscle problems, I don't have a surgical fix for that, physical therapy and really conservative measures like some medications or moist heat and behavior management. Those things are most helpful. If what about acupuncture? That's a, a there are some uh, very preliminary evidences that acupuncture can help, but I think it's more in uh, helping muscle relaxation and chronic pain management. And uh, I have had friends who have been uh, sent for physical therapy for this mm-hmm. problem. Yeah, it can be helpful. Um, usually, it takes quite a commitment for quite a while, but especially for the muscular problems. Uh, it can be helpful in helping uh, reduce inflammation and pain in the surrounding muscles. And then when is it time to think about surgery? So uh, if you have uh, an episode where you uh, can't open very well all of a sudden, where you have a kind of a locked feeling, if you have recurrent dislocation where you open really wide uh, and then you can't close your jaw, and maybe you need to go to the emergency room or see a physician to uh, get your jaw closed, that's you know, once or twice in those scenarios, it may resolve, but if it's a recurrent thing, then you probably should have that checked out and be considered for surgery. If you have really bad arthritis and pain on opening or closing down, um, or you have a change in your bite, things like that, uh, we do anything from, a, you know, really small arthroscopic procedures where we look around in the joint and wash it out to, you know, total joint uh, replacement surgeries. So. I've been sort of worried about that locking thing you talked about, and you if you end up having to go to the emergency room, and how do they get it closed? I'm so not if you're, sure I want to know. Good question. <laughs> so if you're locked open, uh, usually it requires a little bit of sedation, but to help the muscles get relaxed, but they'll hold. You can hold on to the lower <laughs> jaw and just basically push it down, and then push it back to get around that kind of ramp that the uh, jaw goes down when it opens. Well, you I talk need... about joint replacement. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> I need to leave the room now. <laughs> How successful is joint replacement there? It's, it's, uh, it's actually quite successful uh, if you're choosing the right patients, and that's, of course, uh, critical for any surgery. Um, the data that we have right now has been going for about uh, 20, 25 years, and we see that lots of patients, especially those with uh, bad arthritis are doing very well. We haven't seen lots of problems with mechanical failure of the joints. Uh, so it's very successful in terms of reducing pain and improving function. So everything you wanted to know about the TMJ and a little <laughs> bit more. We've been talking with oral maxillofacial surgeon, Dr. Jonathan Fillmore, about jaw pain and the TMJ joint. Thanks so much for being with us, Dr. You bet. Fillmore. Thanks so much. Good to have you. That's our program for this week. For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs. Tweet us your health and medicine questions anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or email us at Radio at newsnetwork.mayo.edu. 
You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.